Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with Chicago jazz saxophonist and educator John Wojohoski. Originally from the streets of Detroit, he's in Chicago these days, and he's busy promoting his new album called Focus, a direct inspiration from his greatest teacher, his father. Over the course of our conversation, he talked about a great variety of things, from his jazz heroes to his plans, teaching full-time, and much, much more. Dig this interview, my friends. Right on time. Yes. That's what we do around here. <laughs> How are you, sir? Thanks for calling. I'm good. Hey. Good. How are you? Hey, good, man. Thank you for taking some time to talk with me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. So I'm going to go ahead and dive right in here. Um, okay. First of all, let me just get a general idea. What's been going on with you lately? Right now, I'm sort of consumed with uh, getting the word out about this recording. Yeah. And uh, and also, you know, working on booking the band to play outside of Chicago. Um, which is a little tricky because I teach full time at a high school. So, yeah. um, but uh, that's that's been sort of what has consumed me of late. You know, what was kind of the creative forces, so to speak, that went into this release? Actually, the creative force was um, I did a record back in 2009, and and it did pretty well. But I put it out myself; it wasn't on a label. And once the, sort of the cycle of that recording had kind of um, lived its life after a couple of years. Um, you know, you, I guess in talking to my friends, uh, you know, other artists and jazz musicians, I think everybody reaches a point in their career. Uh, and I think it tends to happen somewhere in your mid thirties where you sort of look around and you think that maybe more would have happened artistically than it has. I thought, I don't know if I'm ever going to bother doing another rec- recording because it's expensive and, you know, is the juice worth the squeeze, et cetera, et cetera. So fast forward to two years ago, my dad um, had uh, had gotten cancer. And actually, it went pretty quick. He was in a time of, between he was diagnosed with, actually it was stage one lymphoma, between uh, being diagnosed with it and the day he died was almost four months to the day. Wow. Um, and I think a lot of that had to do with because of what cancer is and the treatments you have to go through. Uh, sure. Your immune system is so. I think he caught an infection. But yeah. at any rate, after that happened and after I had some time to reflect and, you know, after kind of grieving that process, um, I kind of came to the realization um, that life is short and I still had a lot to say as an artist. And in many ways, uh, these recording projects are these are documents of what you're doing and they go on forever. And so it was like, I need to do another recording and then another recording after that, another recording after that. So, um, that it was sort of an artistic, uh, impetus to kind of get moving again. Um, right on. And it's, it was kind of the shot in the arm I needed, I think. So, so that was, that was really the, the spur that got things going. Um, so then, you know, I had about, at that point, I had about a half a record's worth of material written. Um, so I got writing again and, and wrote some more music and actually booked, booked a bunch of gigs um, for this group uh, back in, let's see, this would be 2000, like early 2014. And so we played a lot uh, the first half of 2014 and kind of workshopped the music. Um, and then uh, with plans to go into the studio 
early 2015. So, yeah, we played that, and we played the Chicago Jazz Festival last fall, um, went into the studio in January, and so now here we are. It's amazing the unpredictability of life, how it can spur you in ways you mm-hmm. never thought would happen. You know? Totally, totally. That's a, that's a yeah, great Yeah, it's funny, story. the older I get, the more I realize the things that you hear older people talk about how life really does influence your art, and it's really true. Uh, yeah. But when you're a kid, you're just worried about playing the right notes over the right chords, and you don't really – Yeah, I don't think you have necessarily enough life experience to realize that. That's the key to it. It's the wisdom that you accumulate over time. It's like when you hear someone like yeah. Sonny Rollins talk about still playing, how his views on things in the beginning. In fact, I've even heard interviews with Bob Dylan where, you know, they ask about the music in the beginning, and he's like, listen, it was a different time. Things have changed. Right. I've gotten divorced. I've had kids. I've had mortgages. I wasn't there then, you know. And that's the beauty mm-hmm. of the artistic process. It kind of follows your lineage of living and maturing and hopefully gaining wisdom through this life, you know. Right, so right. Um, there's something to be said about that. So let's talk about your life. You started out in the Motor City. Talk to me a little bit mm-hmm. about growing up in Detroit. Uh, Detroit is a – man, is it a great place to grow up in musically because uh, for a, a variety of reasons. Uh, I think there is a certain element of funk, maybe, is mm-hmm. the best way to put it, that permeates through – all music there. So no, no matter what kind of music you play, there is um, there there's this element of blues and and uh, kind of the African diaspora that's in everything. I think that's what made Motown what it was. Yeah. It was pop music, but it had this really heavy, um, not just jazz, but a kind of a soul jazz sort of vibe to it. Um, yeah. So that's an important part of the music there, but also the community is, it's just, there's a lot of really great elder musicians. Well, there were more at that time than there are now. A lot of those guys are gone, but there's a lot of great encouraging elder musicians who also will set you straight if you're not, uh, you know, really doing it right. Um And it was a really inclusive scene too, because uh it really didn't matter. You know, I, I got to play with people from all different walks of life, all colors, all uh, just a really great integrated kind of scene. You know, if you could play, then you played. And yeah. uh, that was sort of the bottom line. Yeah. So you kind of touched on your dad being the influence, which you probably didn't realize was going to happen. But in, in a very real sense, growing up, he was a sheet metal worker by day and a jazz organist mm-hmm. by night. Channeling the vibe. Yeah, sort of. That's, that's in the 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 uh, you know in my bio it, it says that, and that's partly true. When I got by the time I was a young kid, he wasn't really playing anymore. Gotcha. Um, but previous to that, uh, before I was on the scene, and then also when I was really young, yeah, he was working forty hours a week uh, doing sheet metal layout, and then playing six nights a week on the organ. Um, so yes, that's true, but. I just don't want people to think this was like an ongoing thing. Right. And, uh... Well, so he has the Hammond B3. You end up picking mm-hmm. the sax. How did that come about? Mm-hmm. I, well, the uh, the funny story is that uh, initially, actually, when he asked me, he show, I, I showed a little aptitude, I think, because he had this melodica 
laying around, and I picked it up, and I figured out how to play um, the theme song from Dr. Shivago on there, Some All My Love, because my grandmother really liked that song. Yeah. And being of Polish heritage, uh, she enjoyed the polkas. So when he asked me, you know, he figures out, hmm, there's some musical aptitude here. This kid's got an ear, and he kind of figured this out just by messing around on the melodica. So he said, what, you know, what instrument do you want to play? And I think at that point I was eight. And so my initial reaction, because I thought, you know, when you're eight uh, and you want to please your grandmother, I said, how about the accordion? Now, he had started on the accordion uh, when he was a kid. And he says, "Mm, let's pick again. So (laughs) I picked saxophone because he used to play these recordings of uh, Don Patterson with Sonny Stitt. And I think I was drawn to that sound. Um, and so that's why I wanted to play saxophone. Right on. Stitt, who is still, I mean, I have, you know, there's obviously favorite saxophone players, but when I get to the heart of it, man, Sonny Stitt is still, there's something about that that touches you right in the heart. And uh, just love Sonny Stitt. Yeah, absolutely. So when you were a kid, what did you dream about being when you grew up? Um, I didn't really think I was going to be a musician until I got to high school, actually. Um, and I don't know why that is, but uh, once I got into high school and I went, uh, I spent a summer at Interlochen between 10th and 11th grade. And after that, on the way home, uh, I was in the car ride home and I, I kind of realized that, man, that was, I, I just spent the summer doing music all day, every day. And that time went by awfully quickly. Yeah. I think that's maybe what my call, I mean, that's what I should do, you know. That was, that didn't feel, you know how people say, pick a career where it doesn't feel like work? Yeah. Uh, that's, I, to me, that's what music is. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't feel like work. It's it's something I would do anyway. So uh, that's where I decided I'm going to be a musician. So, cool. Um, and just loving jazz music. That's I'm a jazz musician. Yeah. So was there an album you mentioned Sonny Stitt, but was there a specific mm-hmm. album growing up that kind of part of the curtains for you? Um well in terms of learning how to play, yes. Uh because I think I was uh in middle school and I borrowed uh my dad's L P of Boss Tenors in Orbit which is Sonny Stitt, Gene Ammons, Don Patterson, Billy James, and I can't remember who the guitar player is. I don't know if it's Grant Green or... But anyway, uh, on that record, they play Walkin', and I learned how to... I just figured out by ear how to play the Gene Ammons and the Sonny Stitt solos off that record, and that was kind of the beginning of me learning some vocabulary. Um, Sure. And, and yeah, so if there's a record I would point to that says, like, that's the one where I really started to immerse myself in the music, that's the one. Cool. So let's let's keep on that train with your life, going from Detroit. You migrate to Chicago. Talk to me about what that migration was like, how you embraced the scene there. What kind of happened when you got to Chicago? Um, well... There's a little bit of a detour first because after college, I went to New York for a little bit. Okay. Um, because, of course, that's where everybody goes. 
And uh, I really didn't like the living situation in New York City. It was just a, a little too – well, I shouldn't say a little. It was a lot too fast for me. Um, and I just found it really overwhelming. Part of that could have been because I was only 22. Maybe it was too much at that point in my life. But, um, you know, after spending six or seven months there and realizing that I'm not going to be here for 30 years uh, and, man, is it expensive here um, – I think I need to go back to Detroit and regroup. So I went back to Detroit, and that's where I started teaching um, in the public school because I had gotten an education degree in college. Uh, we moved to Chicago um, because my wife actually uh, had a potential job opportunity that didn't end up panning out, but I was kind of feeling in Detroit like I was playing – the kind of gigs I was playing, I thought, okay, here I am. I'm in my late 20s. Where do I go from here? Um, you know, is this really all there is going to be? So we talked about maybe moving here, and I already knew some people here. Um, so we did. We moved here, and uh, it, it didn't take long to to meet up with some musicians um, who were, you know, like-minded musicians and start playing uh, quite a bit. I think one of the first gigs I did, ironically, actually, was an organ player named Dan Trudell. Uh, we played up in Milwaukee with a sort of an organ funky horn band he had at the time with, with Clyde Stubblefield on drums. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's like you move to any town and you start playing. You play one gig and that leads to another gig and you meet more people. And then the next thing you know, you're, you're playing a lot. And uh, I think the first year I was here, I played twice as many gigs as I did in Detroit the previous year. And I had just moved here. So I thought this is a good place to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of the Windy City, what's the greatest thing about living there and being involved with the jazz scene? Well, I think uh, a couple things. One, uh, some of the musicians here, and I'll point to the guys on the recording, um, Dana Hall, Dennis Carroll, Ryan Cohen, those guys are as good as anybody anywhere. Um, I think specifically what's great about living here, um, as opposed to, say, New York, is you really are sort of allowed to have your own artistic identity, and people don't really get pigeonholed here. Um, I think in New York maybe it's more difficult. People want to put you in a box. You know, this guy's a straight-ahead guy. This guy, he plays... Uh, more avant-garde um, and it's very difficult with the exception of only it seems like a few people out there it's very difficult to be able to take elements of all those kinds of music and do what you think is you and here you're sort of allowed to be you that's cool so talk to me a little bit about your tight-knit group with Dana Hall Dennis Carroll and Brian Cohen you guys have done a lot of work and mm -hmm. just talk to me about how you all came together and how the unit kind of gels the way it does. Um, well, let me start with Dennis because Dennis is one of the first bass players I played with when I moved here. And so I think at this point I probably played with Dennis more than just about any other musician on the planet. Um, so we met, we both play in the Chicago jazz orchestra and that's where we met. And so we played a lot and um, he the Bobby Broom's trio right around that time when I moved here was Dennis and uh, Dana Hall. In fact, I remember uh, the New Year's Eve before we moved. We moved here in the summer of 2002. 
And on the New Year's Eve between 2001 and 2002, I heard those guys on the radio because they were on NPR um, with Eric Alexander. So it was Bobby Broom's group with Eric Alexander. And uh, I distinctly remember thinking, man, who is that drummer? That is out of this world. Yeah. So so I had been playing with Dennis, and then I had never played with Dana until we did a recording, actually, with this pianist named Joan Hickey. who, if you know who Joel Spencer is, Joel the drummer, his uh, Joan is his wife. Okay. We were doing a recording project that Dennis recommended me for, and that's the first time that Dana and I played together. And I swear, man, it was like we had been playing together for years. Somehow we come from a a place where I think we just hear music in a really similar way, and um, it just feels really natural. So um, that's. And for me, that was kind of the bait. Like I'm, I really latch on to drummers, and if I get a real um, important connection with a drummer, that's kind of the very first thing I need, to, at least when I'm putting my own group together. Sure. Um, and then with Ryan, um, that was a little later on because I had wanted to uh, work with him because I was so fascinated with his composing. Um, I had all his recordings and had been checking out all his music, and we were trying to work together and you know how something comes up and they call you and you can't do it. And it took a few years before we finally sort of got together. And then I uh, was on his last project, the river and uh, was using him on some gigs and also be doing something with him next year. He's got another chamber music America grant with the sextet and strings. Um, He's got such a, a great, history of the music in his playing and his comping, but also he really comes at it from a sort of compositional element. Yeah. Um, so we, you know, we gelled that way. And he, you know, of course, Chicago is a big scene, but it's not so big that um, people don't have a history of playing together. So that rhythm section, you know, Ryan has played with Dana a lot in other situations and also with Dennis. And, of course, like I said, I mean, Dennis and Dana have been playing together probably now for 25 years. And you put the four of us together, and it to me, it feels like a band. I mean, we've been working together now for with that unit. I've been playing with Dennis and Dana for over 10 years, but now with Ryan, it's probably five or six years we've been playing together. And, um, you know, it doesn't feel like a pickup group to me. It feels like a band. And I think on the record, I think – that shows on the record, you know, sometimes when you listen to records, it's like there's a certain element of unfamiliarity between the musicians. Yeah. I would like to think that comes through in this recording, that that we're really communicating all the time. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so I'm going to segue a little bit from your music now and go back into teaching. You mentioned you're, mm-hmm. you're a full-time teacher in uh, St. Mm-hmm. Charles. What What is your teaching philosophy with the kids? Um, you know, my philosophy, because everybody's at a different level, and I'm teaching, like, I start my day teaching freshman woodwinds. I've got ninth graders. And then uh, the last class I teach is the top jazz band here. And so I'm really teaching the whole gamut of ability. Um, I think a couple things that I'm trying to do, most of these kids are not going to be musicians, um, which is great, because... I don't think with a shrinking music industry, there's not enough room for 
any more professional musicians other than the people that are really serious. Um, yeah. So what that means is, I think, first of all, I just I want to expose the kids to a lot of different kinds of music so that when they leave school, they are a more educated consumer of music. But I think the most valuable, the two most valuable lessons that they can walk away with from being part of a music program is, one, no matter what you do, you try to do that job. Um, you're always pursuing doing things perfectly. You pursue pursue perfection. And you know, you really give it your all. Uh, the other thing I think music affords that really, the, other, the only other thing that comes close really is sports. Um, but I think music on a much deeper level, just the ensemble experience, to really surrender yourself to the music and the ensemble and create something that's greater than the individual. Yeah. I don't think you can get that outside of music other than maybe a little bit in sports. Yeah, um, but even sports, it's not quite the same thing, um, because music you're doing it solely for the sake of the art. There's no trophy. Yeah, um, and I think those are the two things that I really try to impart to the students that, you know, you whatever you do, you try to do it really well, and um, and then there's something about that ensemble experience that you take with you the rest of your life into other things that you do. Yeah. So, who who's taught you the most? Well, probably my dad, to be honest with you. Uh, he was a really wise guy, and I don't mean wise guy, but he was a really wise man. Um, and it's it's uh, hardly a day goes by where I don't think of something that he taught me, or even things that I'll tell my students. Uh, you know, my dad used to say this, and it's true. Um, I, he's probably... I, yeah, I would say he's probably my number one teacher in life, and even in music. Specifically music, um, I was really fortunate that when I was in high school, I studied with um, a guy named George Benson, who is still alive and still um, one of the standard, he's kind of one of the last guys standing of the, the old guard uh, jazz musicians in Detroit. Um, and he, I, I studied with him for a couple of years, and he really, I was mostly an ear player when I got to him, and he really set me straight with putting the, what I knew were certain sounds and vocabulary to theory so that I was able to apply what I was doing in different situations and not be lost. But, um, yeah, he's he's one of the uh, the great ones. That yeah. a lot of people don't know about if you don't happen to be from Detroit, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let me ask you this: You've thrown some names out, like Sonny Stitt, George, and some other people that mm -hmm. are heavy hitters in jazz. If you had the opportunity to go back in a time and to witness a show, a musician at a venue, where would you go, and what would you want to see? Uh, okay, this this might be surprising to you. Uh, and I will preface all this by saying this is an outgrowth of the <clears throat> before I'm back to doing band now because we hired a, an orchestra teacher. But the last five or six years, I was teaching in addition to jazz bands and theory, I was teaching a couple of orchestras. Yeah. And I ended up getting way into the music of Beethoven. I completely fascinated with Beethoven because I, there's a certain economy 
and so much logic in his music um, that I, I just, every time I hear it, it sounds new to me. I hear new things that I never heard before. And I don't know how he does this because on its surface, sometimes it can be really, really simple. Yeah. So if there was, uh, if there was a place I could go, um, man, I would love to be at their uh, first big concert he put on in Vienna um, where he played his first two symphonies. Yeah. Which just so happened hardly anybody was there because it was right around the time that Napoleon had invaded Vienna. Wow. So they had this big concert planned. And, but that the first symphony starts with a dominant seventh chord, which nobody had ever started a symphony that way before. And I would love to see the reaction of the crowd um, to start that way. So I know that, you know, from a jazz musician, like, you know, I would want to be, you know, go see like train at the Vanguard or something, which would be great. Uh, But yeah, I would be to be able to go back in time and and just even just be in the same room as Beethoven, I think would be really, uh, really amazing. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Why do you love jazz? I love jazz. Um, I love jazz because, for sure. I'm gonna give you three reasons. One, uh, the the that African something I really tap into when it's swing music. The rhythmic elements of of Africa that are present in jazz music. Uh, there's something about that that really speaks to me. Um, and then also along those lines, there's the communal aspect of jazz music. Um, when it's done in a really truly communal way with everybody uh, communicating constantly. Um, and then lastly, the how no matter what you do, every time you play, it's a different performance. Then the music can go in a different direction every night, which really keeps it fresh. Yeah. So speaking of the freshness of music and live music, let me put this out at you. Let's say someone hears you live, you're plugging your new CD, and they love it. They come home, and they're like, man, I saw this guy, and I want to know more about him. If someone was to go into Google and put a search in and come up with an immaculate package of who you are, and and, Mm -hmm. and like a short bio of who you are and maybe a song or two, what would you pick? What would you say about yourself? And what would you pick for music? Um, well, you know, I would say, uh, well, that's tough because who likes to talk about themselves? Right. But, uh, you know, because I, I sort of lead a dual life. I'm an educator, uh, but I'm also an active uh, performer, composer. And uh, so, you know, I, I guess I would say that um, I'm uh, – I would like to think I'm one of the, the you know, leading saxophone playing musicians in Chicago um, on the scene here. And uh, if I had to pick a couple pieces of music um, for somebody that's never heard what we do before, I would pick um, I'd pick one tune off of the first record. Uh, that record's called Lexicon. There's a tune on there called Title. Um, I'd say check that out. And then I think on this recording, my favorite, um, my favorite track 
and one I think that kind of runs in a different direction than title, but also kind of speaks to how I play is Some of the Elders. Those, you know, those are the two tracks, I think, that would kind of represent me as a musician. Perfect. That's, I think, right there, that's a perfect way of wrapping everything up. And it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for opening up and giving me some of your time. Absolutely. Thanks for calling and playing the record and having interest. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, Chicago, and spots all over America giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to John for his music, time, and devotion to the jazz craft. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things neon jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.